start out with a real cool, um, like, 11-minute video about um, the Star-Spangled Banner, as you've never heard it. He penned a song that I'm sure you're aware of. You've seen it. It's in most hymnals throughout our churches. It's called the National Anthem. It is our song as an American. We go, however, to a ball game. We stand in our church services and we sing the words of that song. And they float over our minds and our lips and we don't even realize what we're singing. Most of us have memorized it as a child, but we've never really thought about what it means. Let me tell you a story. Francis Scott Key was a lawyer in Baltimore. The colonies were engaged in vicious conflict with the mother country, Britain. Because of this conflict and the protractedness of it, they had accumulated prisoners on both sides. The American colonies had prisoners and the British had prisoners. And the American government initiated a move. They went to the British and they said, let us negotiate for the release of these prisoners. They said, we want to send a man out to discuss this with you. They were holding the American prisoners in boats about a thousand yards offshore. And they said, we want to send a man by the name of Francis Scott Key. He will come out and negotiate to see if we can make a mutual exchange. On the appointed day in a rowboat, he went out to this boat and he negotiated with the British officials. And they reached a conclusion that men could be exchanged on a one-for-one -one basis. Francis Scott Key, jubilant with the fact that he'd been successful, went down below in the boats and what he found was a cargo hold full of humanity, men. And he said, men, I've got news for you tonight. You're free. He said, tonight I have negotiated successfully your return to the colonies. He said, you'll be taken out of this boat, out of this filth, out of your chains. As he went back up on board to arrange for their passage to the shore, the admiral came and he said, we have a slight problem. He said, we will still honor our commitment to release these men, but it'll be merely academic after tonight. It won't matter. Francis Scott Key said, what do you mean? He said, well, Mr. Key, he said, tonight we have laid an ultimatum upon the colonies. Your people will either capitulate and lay down the colors of that flag that you think so much of, or you see that fort right over there, Fort Henry? He said, we're going to remove it from the face of the earth. He said, how are you going to do that? He said, if you will, scan the horizon of the sea. And as he looked, he could see hundreds of little dots. And he said, that's the entire British war fleet. He said, all of the gunpowder, all of the armament is being called upon to demolish that fort. It will be here within striking distance in a matter of about two and a half hours. He said, the war is over. These men would be free anyway. He said, you can't shell that fort. He said, that's, that's a large fort. He said, it's full of women and children. He says, it's predominantly not a military fort. He said, don't worry about it. They said, we've left them a way out. And he said, what's that? He said, do you see that flag way up on the rampart? He said, we have told them that if they will lower that flag, the shelling will stop immediately. And we'll know that they've surrendered. And you'll now be under British rule. Francis Scott Key went down below and told the men what was about to happen. And they said, how many ships? He said, hundreds. The ships got closer. Francis Scott Key went back up on top and he said, men, I'll shout down to you what's going on as we watch.
as twilight began to fall and as the haze hung over the ocean as it does at sunset. Suddenly, the British war fleet unleashed. <clears throat> he says the sound was deafening. There were so many guns that there were no reliefs. He said it was absolutely impossible to talk or hear. He said suddenly the sky, although dark, was suddenly lit. And he says from down below, all he could hear the men, the prisoners, saying was, tell us where the flag is. What have they done with the flag? Is the flag still flying over the rampart? Tell us. One hour, two hours, three hours into the shelling, Every time the bomb would explode and it would be close to the flag, they could see the flag in the illuminated red glare of that bomb. And Francis Scott Key would report down to the men below, it's still up. It's not down. The admiral came and he said, your people are insane. He said, what's the matter with them? He said, don't they understand this is an impossible situation? Francis Scott Key said he remembered what George Washington had said. He said the thing that sets the American Christian apart from all other people in the world is he will die on his feet before he'll live on his knees. The Admiral said we have now instructed all of the guns to focus on the rampart to take that flag down. He said we don't understand something. Our reconnaissance tells us that that flag has been hit directly again and again and again, and yet it's still flying. We don't understand that. But he said, now we're about to bring every gun for the next three hours to bear on that point. Francis Scott Key said the barrage was unmerciful. All that he could hear was the men down below praying. The prayer. God keep that flag flying where we last saw it. Sunrise came. He said there was a heavy mist hanging over the land, but the rampart was tall enough. There stood the flag, completely nondescript, in shreds. The flagpole itself was at a crazy angle. The flag was still at the top. Francis Scott Key went aboard and immediately went into Fort Henry to see what had happened. And what he found had happened was that that flagpole and that flag had suffered repetitious direct hits. And when hit had fallen, but men, fathers, who knew what it meant for that flag to be on the ground. Although knowing that all of the British guns were trained on it, walked over and held it up humanly until they died. Their bodies were removed and others took their place. Francis Scott Key said what held that flagpole in place at that unusual angle were patriots' bodies. He penned the song, Oh say can you see by the dawn's early light 
what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming. Or the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that the flag was still there. Oh say, does that star-spangled banner yet fly and wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. The debt was demanded, the price it was paid. Oh say, can you see by the dawn's early light What so proudly we hailed At the twilight's last gleaming Whose broad stripes and bright stars Through the pale has been um, God's sovereign hand on our nation from its inception, and it is undeniable that it's God's providence that our nation was birthed, that it survived 
that it overcame, can you get that, Adam? Overcame all kinds of obstacles. And um, before I get started, as Bruce reminded me that we um, canceled the movie, we were going to watch um, Jesus Revolution. We'll reschedule that. We were going to do it out in the yard. I think the um, weather's just going to give us a fit. <clears throat> <clears throat> So I had heard a man interviewed by Eric uh, Metaxas called The American Miracle, and his name was, is Michael Medved. And uh, he wrote this book because he has studied all of the divine providence, the, the hand of God that has been in so many different uh, places and parts in our nation. And that's why I say we are, <laughs> every every confidence that we are not done yet, that our country is going to be restored. Our, our, our calling is not finished. Our destiny is not done. Take heart. Um, you don't have to figure out what's going on right now. You don't even have to watch it. It's kind of insane anyways. There's a place, a secret place you can get to where you just stand and believe, and you stop listening to the nonsense because most of it is, and believe and know. I've, I chose to get to that place, to stand there. I'm still solidly there. There's going to be, there's another chapter yet to this nation. It's all connected to the world. And um, the first chapter of this book, I began, I just got it. I began reading it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is, this is good stuff. Some of you may know some of this, but uh, this, this, uh, this story is amazing, and it's called The Glorious Fourth, Fourth of July. And uh, so the backdrop uh, to this day in 1860, um, no, 18. I have it right here, 1826. The country began, and uh, we began to have our presidents, uh, George Washington, of course, first. Then the second president was a man called John Adams. He was in office for one year, and then he was beat by his rival, Thomas Jefferson. We know these names. These were founders. They signed, you know, the Declaration of Independence. They signed things, the Constitution. Like, they were involved in the creation of this. And so these two men became political rivals. And so they have history, and they, they did their part. And then by 1826, they are, they are retired for the most part. And their, their uh, health has been failing, and they've got to this point. And something very unique happened. So in 1826, it was the 50th anniversary of our nation. So the leaders throughout the whole land decided to do this massive celebration. Anything you could do, we do, we to this day, that's what the fireworks, actually, that's what they're about. 
It's to celebrate this independence that's so precious. So, so even though we may have forgotten what all the booming and the banging, you know, now it lasts for several days. I heard, you know, started last night, and the big booms. I'm like, my goodness, where's Jonathan at? Was, was that? Yeah, the yeah the neighborhood rattles and shakes. I'm I'm sure maybe your your place did too. They can really get out of, yeah, they can really go for it out here in the country. So and there's there's some pretty big booms. Like wow, wow. <laughs> Hope everybody's still all right after that. And the display and it was all about the celebration and the, the nation had made it for 50 years. And they started out like that, fighting that war. Shouldn't have won. Then George Washington comes along. He should have been shot an endless number of times. They couldn't kill the man. There, there are so many stories about It's like, what's up with this? I shot right at him. And so he was sovereignly protected. So there's stories about that. So let me begin to read as Michael um, is writing this. There's a couple paragraphs, then I'll, I'll go into some summary. The Glorious Fourth, Dedication, Death, and 50 Years of Miracles. Coincidence alone could never explain it. That much, seem, that much seemed obvious to Americans in 1826, just as it does to citizens of today. The eerie events of that epic Independence Day suggested the intervention of supernatural forces, mixing death and dedication in such powerful ways that observers of all faiths and of no faith saw evidence of destiny's direction in American affairs. Even now, after nearly 200 years of turbulent history, recollections of that glorious fourth can compel the most skeptical scholars to acknowledge weird, wonderful aspects in the rise of the republic and to reconsider the dis disconcerting old idea that God shows special tenderness toward the American experiment. On the occasion of the 50th 4th of July, such confidence in providential protection seemed not only logical, but unavoidable. After all, the older citizens of the Federal Union had already witnessed a half century of miracles, highlighted by the new nation's pro, uh, prodigious, I can't pronounce half these names, prodigious uh, growth and unprecedented proprieties. Americans viewed themselves as a chosen people, selected for special responsibilities in accompanying their special blessings, and so looked to biblical references to establish the proper context for major public celebrations. So let me reiterate that. The citizens, the early citizens of the nation, they had witnessed enough. They believed that God was with them, that was in things. And so that was their mindset. That has been robbed from our society now and, and our culture, but we want to see it restored. 
that the general population believes that God chose us. There's a term called American exceptionalism that I'm not crazy about that term. It lends to this, but there is a, uh, a belief, whatever term that it may uh, be referred to as with, that we believe that God is with us, that he's for us as a nation. Not in, uh, as in a way of being better than any other nation, just that he's with us. You can believe that about your life and not be ditzing anybody else. I mean, we've, we've learned to say, as hard as it was, I'm his beloved. Hard at first, like, how can I say that, you know? But Jesus, every child you have, you don't mind if they go, I'm your favorite, do you? I mean, it's not a problem. If they believe it, you're like, oh, yeah, it's good. Go for it. And you're the favorite, and you're the favorite, and you're the favorite. It, it has more to do with that attitude of, of, I'm special to you. I'm your son. I'm your daughter. I know who I am. I know how much you care about me. And so to have a, a, a culture, a whole nation that has that attitude, God is with us. And the country at this point was growing at a incredibly fast speed and with that growth there's always difficulties and controversies and and things prying at you know what's important this is important that's important reestablishing things that everybody can live with and um so that subject comes up in the skeptics don't like this idea. It, you wouldn't think it mattered to people, but he goes on to explain to what degrees scholars go after this, this con, these authentications of what happened at this time on this 4th of July and on many, and many other occasions. They, they hate that idea. Even Barack Obama was asked that question, what he thought of American exceptionalism. And his, his answer was, well, yeah, every American thinks that, and every French person thinks there's French you know, exceptionalism, and every Spanish person, you know, and he, he just deferred the question by. But the question was about, do you believe that about our country? Of course, yeah, he was Barack Obama. Let me find my place here. So the people viewed themselves as chosen, and so they would look for scriptural uh, references to what they were doing. That's how ingrained it was. Can you imagine our culture, society doing that, public officials doing that now? And so they turned to the Bible, which they often did. Preparation for the anniversary repeatedly invoked the Old Testament notion of jubilee, it's like they went there, citing a well-known verse in Leviticus chapter 25. And you shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land and unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you. So 
if you slow down enough to realize what was what they what their intention they had vision for this they were planning a celebration on the 4th and they they were doing it before the lord and they called people out to celebrate in in whatever fashion they could any bell they could ring, anything they could do, any way to demonstrate a celebration. And it went through the whole land. It was in every little nook and cranny. It's just, I mean, this thing of the 4th of July, this even helps me go, no, it's, well, it's not actually ridiculous, you know? We go, how do we get to fireworks and, you know, loud noises and all that? Well, it's a carry-on. If you can realize that seed got planted, we're still doing it, like, what motivates some of you to go out and spend hundreds of dollars? Maybe I don't even probably don't even want to know. How much? To make noise and smoke for a very short period of time and go, oh, that was great. And it all went up in smoke, you know? Disturb the neighborhood and do what, you know, but and I would go, oh gosh, you know. But there's something in us, we don't even know what we're doing. You see, once something's in our DNA, it keeps showing up. You go, what am I doing this for anyways? Because it's part of you. I mean, now I'm standing here going, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. That, that's, it's in us, and we can't help ourselves. We've got to do something. We've got to make some noise. We've got to acknowledge this thing. So when they attach this scripture and Leviticus 25 to it, and, and it was like, it's the 50th year. There's all kinds of connotations to that. And I believe, Michael Medved believes, the Lord shined down on that. He authenticated that choice for them to um, celebrate in that way. The nation had been experiencing a breakthrough growth of they were to like nearly 12 million people by now which is five times the population um, 50 years earlier there were thir the 13 colonies at, by this point had turned into 24 thriving states John, John Quincy Adams was now the president, the son of John Adams, who was the second president. And, and uh, at this point, he's still living. He was still living. The young nation was struggling with a lot of bipartisan ba battles. We do that. Oh, curse that bipartisan political thing. Like, you know, like I was, I keep, I, I'm like, could we skip that and let's just become passionate about keeping the Constitution. Let's just become passionate about the, the law of the land, of upholding the law, of, of being the people we are called to be, that our founders called us to be. Get caught up in that, that other thing, and you're not paying attention to what really matters. They start arguing and fighting over, yeah, are you a donkey or are you an elephant? Like, honestly, you know? And you see, like, I'm like, I'm just, I'm like, how did we get here? And what, what point does it prove? There are things that really need worked out. But if we, on purpose, keep dividing ourselves, 
I mean, then you're just saying no just because you don't like them. That's the leadership of our nation right now. It's like, oh, come on, guys. You're, you're in third grade. What about giving yourself to uphold the Constitution and making sure that what we do is right and fair and legal and those kind of things? That's actually what our calling is as a nation. So the battles were great, heated. John, what's interesting about John Adams and Thomas, and Thomas Jefferson is that in their early years, when they were young, that's, they were opponents. They were always fighting each other. And, and Michael uh, Medved ex- takes the time to show the transition to where they weren't, they didn't stop, it wasn't about compromise, so I don't want to come off that way. But they, they stopped arguing about their differences and picking at things, and they realized we better start celebrating what we have in common. That's always a good thing. Let's start celebrating what really matters. Let's go, let's fight for those things. Let's go after that. And these two gentlemen, they made a transition in their life. And uh, I believe it was like by uh, in 1812, there was, there was a real switch up and they, they began to, to really work together and calling people to. Of course, they were beyond their years as, as presidents and all of those things. And they start start going after this. In um, eighteen twenty, there was uh, Thomas Jefferson. In in looking this, now he has eyes to see. I mean, this is one of our founders, and you understand that God is with these men, like He wants them to have wisdom. Do you understand if you're a key player in something and God has called it forth in the first place that he's going to give you divine inspiration and, leader, and, and leadership? And we go, well, well, it doesn't quite fit in the parameters of the church. It's like God's much bigger than the church. Just saying. I remember um, if you ever get a chance, if you have not gone to witness the ark down in is it Kentucky, where that's at, and uh, the creation, um, what's that called, the other part of it? Yeah, that one. Uh, Phyllis and I got to go down there and, and, and the ark and what they, what they created is so amazing. And you're standing in that. And um, what's his name? Ham, Sam Ham? Ham? Is he? Kent, yes. Has written a lot of books about, about this stuff. And. In the ark, they, they went past our Sunday school story about it in the sense of how do you feed that many animals and water them and what do you do in this situation? And how do you actually get this boat to float and not roll over? See, all those things matter. And how do you keep breathable air in this thing? You know, it's like in a barn that's all closed up, manure, a whole, you know, nine yards, and it's raining outside and raining a long time. So you realize, I know what I'm like when I'm building something and making something. I begin to pray. I go, Lord, I'm, I'm like intent. I got to figure this out. 
and I ask for help. <laughs> and I just do that. I've learned to do that. I do that all the time. I ask for wisdom. Lord, help me. Help me move this, do this, whatever. Like I just, I ask for help in whatever I'm doing. And I'm standing there looking at all this and I'm like, man, have we been duped. You know, we have this, we came from cavemen mentality. It's like, oh no, we don't believe that. Yeah, but we've been influenced by that, that concept. We think man started out stupid. Now listen, if the story's correct, which I believe with all my heart it is, and God created Adam and Eve, and they're in a garden. He's their papa. And he's going to show them things and teach them things. And for every son of God that is on the planet, whatever they do, the Lord gives them wisdom. Pretty soon they can craft metal. They can do things. We're like, how do they do that? We just think that technology hit, you know, about 1932. I don't know, whatever, you know, recently. And to realize, oh, yeah, little divine inspiration. And since we didn't come from cavemen, and because we're, we're actually very intelligent, then add divine inspiration to that, you can create this magnificent ark and take care of all those animals and those people. I mean, if you haven't gone to see that, I don't care how old you are, man, woman, child, whatever, if you're a man, you know, you like anything about, you'll be impressed. Like, wow, whoa. And you go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So how much more would the Lord not inspire our leaders and show them things? And Thomas Jefferson, though, uh, well, I just, I don't know that much about his religious beliefs, but... He begins to perceive what our, our nation is uh, in for. And this is in 1820. So this event on this, this glorious 4th of July is 1826. 1820, he, 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 real, he has this epiphany. And, and in the description of it, it's like all of a sudden he saw and he perceived that the Civil War was coming and what it would be over. Because he was watching this problem, this tension grow. And of course, I'm definitely not for slavery, never have been. But it's a part of our history. And there were many good men that had slaves. So I'm glad that all got changed. I really am. But there were many people that didn't know different. Like that was an okay thing. They just didn't know. They didn't necessarily uh, mistreat there. It was just part of life. It's kind of hard for us to think that way, to real, but it, it was. And there was a great tension growing over whether a state could be a state that had slaves or a state that didn't. And Jefferson went, oh boy, we're headed for trouble. He begins to write about this. This, this is coming. We're going to have to deal with this situation because whether we like it or not, it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy us. It's going to split us apart. Again, when you understand God cares about our nation, and we were not perfect in any way, shape, or form, then he is, intends to get us through the difficult things. Like, man, how could God, you and I were kind of short, fused, patience level. We're, I'm patient for a few moments. 
then I'm like, okay, I'm over it. Let's, you know. God is very patient. Like, he'll take sometimes generations of people to make a change that he wants. I'm like, wow, God, how do you do that? Like, well, that's, this is me and this is you. You know, that's style. So these men were key. They were still, though they didn't have positions, they were still leaders. And when it comes up to this date on the 4th of July, a great celebration is called. John Quincy Adams is the president. And John Quincy Adams has become aware that he's not going to win the next election because there's a lot of things going on and changes going on. Parties changing and influences changing and so he's aware of that. Get through the celebration. He, he's not aware of this. He gets weird word afterwards that his father is very sick. So he begins to travel. I believe he was in Massachusetts. There was a name of the homestead where John Adams lived. And uh, he begins his journey there, and then he finds out that he has already died. At the very same time that John, right at the height of the celebration on the 4th, Thomas Jefferson also dies in a whole different place on exactly that day, on July 4th, this July 4th. And as they, two presidents die on the very same day, how many of you knew about this story? A few of you. I didn't even know this, of course, yeah. School wasn't my, yeah, we'll just leave that alone. And John Adams is like, oh, it's a long trip. And he's, it's like, you know, he decides I'm going to go there anyways. And he realizes he's probably not going to make this. And he goes up to this homestead, 40 acres that was, had, there was a big home there where John Adams lived. And he gets there and he's like, Whatever it costs me, I'm going to buy this land. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this, and this is where I'm going to make my home. You know? and, and I thought of you, know, the, you guys just going through this with your, your mom losing her and being at the house, and you're, you're looking through these things. And he, he went through the same thing. It was a long trip. There's you know, um, four or five days, and hot stagecoach, or however they travel, I forget. And gets there, and he realizes that. So sovereignly on this day, both of these men, and they both were aware of getting to this day. Thomas Jefferson even has some quotes about, oh, oh, glorious day. I think he called that, like, I made it. He kept asking the doctor, is it the fourth yet? And they're like, they don't want to tell him, uh, it's a couple hours till midnight. Like, you know, just kind of avoid telling him the truth about it because they're like, he's not going to make it. Sure enough, he made it into the fourth, that fourth, you know, until he died. And then it hit them how significant it was that two presidents on the same day die, and they come to this conclusion. Of course, they had dedicated the day to the Lord. It was the day of Jubilee. They quote this scripture in Leviticus 25.10. Like, they, they connected that. They connected it for the, for the whole nation. And these men, icons in our, you know, founders, they come to this place. And it was this, it became this, the chances of that happening 
were like, it was more likely you could get a royal flush and, you know, whatever. You know, it was like really impossible that this, this would happen exactly the same time. It became a sign to them that God was with them, that he was putting, God was putting his mark on, on his favor being there. And these stories then just begin to build and grow and grow and grow over the, the, the life of our nation from the moment the, the pilgrims came to <laughs> Plymouth Rock, missed their mark by hundreds of miles. They show up in December in Maine, was it? Where's Plymouth at? There's ice on the boat and they just land like, and they make this prayer. May God's grace be sufficient for us. So everything that they did, they did with this super awareness of calling out to God. And we want to restore that faith that we believe God loves this country, that he is not done with it, that he is going to save it sovereignly again. I believe that he will. I believe he's moving. His promise is coming. Just wait. When you see the chaos, just go, it's going to change. That's going to go away. Stuff's coming. Stuff's happening. The Lord has a plan. He's not going to leave. There's too much promise in play. And so on this 4th of July, I want you to be encouraged. That it is a jubilee every time we celebrate the 4th. And it's not a religious holiday, but wow, it's really grounded in God founding our country and God loving our country and having a purpose and destiny. We're not better than anybody else in the world, but God has proven that he's with us. And he's with others too, but he verifies. We can have that confidence that he's with us, that he's going to make a way. He's doing things. And when you feel that way and you believe that, changes how you look at things. It changes how you talk. It changes what you believe. And you, you move out of that. We were talking lately about complaint, temptation to step into complaint. And it's not about whether you have valid things to complain about or not. Just, okay, y'all do actually. You came to me with, hey, here's what I'm complaining about. What do you think, Pastor? I'm like, oh, it's, yeah, it's a pretty good one. <laughs> uh, well, honestly, not only would I, 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 have, I have done that. Then I go, God, I'm not helping the situation. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't know. How I, this is rough. That's hard. It's not about whether you have a valid complaint. It's about whether it's the right move or not. It's about getting your eyes fixed on but God, God's doing something. He can't, he can't leave me in this place. I have a hope. I have a promise that he will deliver me, that he will make a way where there is no way. He is faithful. So let me pray over all of you. Father, in Jesus' name, I just thank you for this gathering today. We thank you for our flag. We thank you for our patriots. We thank you for our military. We thank you for the freedoms and liberties that we have. And in Jesus' name, we believe that they're going to remain. That we're going to hold up that flag and hold up that hope. 
until the last man of us is holding it up. But we will not lay it down. And sometimes maybe that's all it takes to defeat this enemy. That you just say, I'm not bowing down to this thing. I'm not giving in. I'm not conceding. I'm not agreeing. I'm standing here for the fight for the long run. Father, I ask that you watch over people this week. Your blessing, restore their, keep us in health. Keep us in prosperity. And we just thank you for all of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Great book, The American Miracle. May we had the dedication for Mackenzie here and we had a nice party over in your front yard afterwards and that day um, Margie was here for church and um, she got in my line for communion and <laughs> when she got to the front of the line she had a number of topics she wanted to discuss with me <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I didn't want to be rude, I kind of nodded, and um, uh, I realized that, that she didn't know. There's a number of people behind her waiting to get communion as well. And uh, she kept talking about things, and um, what was funny is that, so this other line, which is getting considerably shorter as she's talking, uh, no one jumps over to the other line. They just, they just smiled and kind of understood, and, um, and it was just kind of a neat moment. I don't, I don't know that uh, she remembered who I was, but she smiled and just talked as if we were old friends. It was just uh, really cool. One of the topics that she got to was actually communion. <laughs> and um, she told me how they did communion at St. John's, which, which I found interesting. And, um, uh, and she said, you know, only the priests can touch the communion in the Catholic Church. So I just really wanted to share that to you because it was a fond memory that really makes me smile. Um, but as I recalled it, um, I thought of what she said about communion and how many different denominations there are, how many different ways there are to do communion, how many different ways we've done it here. But I think we're on to something. I think you would agree that things are breaking loose. Things are... Uh, happening since this table has been set in the middle of this sanctuary. It's in the middle of us. When you come in the sanctuary, your focus is on the table. When, when we worship, my focus is on the table. When we call people up and we have prayer, I know, I know he's always been present. And Jesus has always been present, but I with the body and blood of this table in the center of everything, I feel his physical presence now. And I think it's very significant that this is the way we do it. He's in the center of us and he wants us in the center of him. In John 15, nine, he says, just as the father has loved me, I have loved you in the same way. Now remain in my love. So he talks about his love, it's a promise, it's there. But there's an action for us. He says, now you remain in it. We, we can come and we can go in and out of it. And he says, stay in it. This is where he wants you to be.
I had a dream a couple nights ago, and I won't go into all the details, but the Lord gave me a love song. And there's just two lyrics in it that I want to share with you. He, he says, count on me, count on my love. And I think it's a message for those who are mourning. And it's a message for those who are sick or anybody that feels you might be at your weakest moment right now. He's saying, lean on me, trust me, count on me, count on my love. It's here, come into it. So I think that's a message for you folks, that the, that the Lord has a kiss for you this morning. That's his message for you. I think he wants to be with you in communion. He wants to be in the center, and he wants you to stay, to remain in his love. So when you come and, and just take communion today, I just ask that you, you have that on your mind, that... Um, that when you receive him, you realize he's not only in the center of us, he wants you in the center. He wants to give you a song. He wants to kiss you this morning. So come and commune and stay a while. This is, this is the abiding. Remain in him and be kissed.